Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our Christmas series, The Hope of the Ages, with a message titled, Christ the Better Joseph. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37 to chapter 50 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. There are very few Bible characters that are portrayed as positively as Joseph. And so if for this Christmas season I'm portraying Christ as the best of all mankind, far greater than any man or woman that has come before him or after, we do well to consider one of the most powerful examples of virtue and of leadership that the human race has seen. This is a man who saved the Middle East from starvation and also saved his own family from assimilation into the surrounding culture. And in so doing, he preserved the hope for the redemption of the world. You know, it's been said that great men have also great vices, great sins. Surely true of King David. I don't think it's true of Joseph. Joseph is one of the world's great saviors. And for all those reasons, you might think it's a major thing to call Jesus far superior to Joseph in every way. And before we dive right into our comparison, let's just talk about this word, salvation. You know, for most Christians, the word is exclusively reserved for salvation from sin, the wrath of God, from eternal damnation, salvation from our own sinful inclinations. Now, that is the ultimate salvation event. It's it's surely also not the only thing we need saving from. We need saving from many things. You know, we buy life insurance so that should we unexpectedly die, we've not procured enough savings for our dependents, Well, the life insurance policy can save our family from poverty. Our medical insurance, indeed, the entire medical industry is meant to save people from disease that might kill them. Seatbelts, airbags, modern ABS brakes, crumple zones, blind spot monitoring, and lane departure warning systems save us from crippling and even life-ending automobile accidents. Life jackets police presence in dangerous neighborhoods, a stable economy, just laws, a host of other things are just the kind of saviors we all need. All of these forms of salvation remind us we're vulnerable, and apart from saviors, we quickly perish. So let's now talk about one of the world's great saviors, a man named Joseph. He was the 11th and youngest son of his family. There was still one more to come, but he wasn't born yet. Joseph grew up as his father's favorite son, and in that way, he's like Jesus. Jesus grew up with a sure knowledge that he was the only begotten of his father, who from all ages had been the object of his father's delight. But Joseph was, at the time we encounter him, the youngest of his fathers, and surely his father's favorite. And for this reason, Joseph is hated by his brothers. Having received a very ornate coat from his father, Well, his brothers saw in that garment the sign of favoritism. They hated him. And eventually, if you read the account in Genesis, you know that his brothers determined to kill him. Reuben, the oldest son, steps in to save his life. And so they decide to sell him to a group of traders who are happy to take anyone sold into slavery. And by God's sovereign design, he's taken to Egypt. He's sold as a household slave into the home of a man named Potiphar. He's an officer of Pharaoh. He's a captain of the guard. And in this way, Jesus does share in some similarity with Joseph. Joseph was rejected by the people of Israel. His father Jacob had his name changed to Israel. The children of Israel are the nation of Israel in seminal form. Joseph is not just removed from the family, but from the nation, 
from the promise God made to Abraham that this nation would be the nation of promise. He now is not a member of a privileged people. He's a household slave in the Egyptian military officer's home. The story of Jesus is not entirely dissimilar. John 1, 10 to 11. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Indeed, his birth is not celebrated in Israel. Well, true enough, Israel did not understand that it had happened, but that just might be the point. They were lost in darkness. It was the pagan magi who came to worship, not the priests of Israel. And King Herod wanted him murdered, lest indeed the messianic king would be born. What's fascinating about the Christmas story is that when the magi entered into Jerusalem, well, they created quite a stir. They had seen the star in the east, and they had concluded that the great king of the Jews had been born, and they, for their part, wanted nothing more than to kneel before him and worship him. It's quite a thing to say, and soon their story is heard throughout the city. Well, that caused mad King Herod, now known as Herod the Great, to want to take action. And so this is where it's fascinating. He calls Israel's leading theologians, and he asks them where the Messiah was to be born, and they opened their Bible, turned to Micah 5, verse 2, and they said, look, this is what the prophet said, he'll be born in Bethlehem. Now look, if you had been a devout follower of your own faith, and hence you would have been waiting for the Lord's Christ and his Messiah, wouldn't you have wanted to join the Magi and check the whole thing out? But the theologians of Jerusalem make no attempt to do so. They will leave it for Herod to do his evil work. They make no attempt to change the course of events. They show no interest in the Lord's Christ. And that's why it makes sense that when we come to Luke 13, Luke tells us that Jesus was journeying to Jerusalem. And at that time, as before, the religious teachers oppose him. And Luke 13, 31 to 34 says, At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Well, of course, these words were in accordance to the words of Isaiah the prophet, who knew that that would be the Messiah's lot. Isaiah 53 verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And when we celebrate Christmas, let's not become so sentimental that we celebrate how lovely babies are, how lovely that baby was, let's remember, rather, that the reaction of Israel to that baby was one of profound rejection. That's not to say that Israel's worse than the rest of the human race. Israel's a lesson book to the human race. As we see Israel rejecting her Messiah, we see Israel as a mirror reflecting our own attitudes towards the Messiah. And as Isaiah said so well, we esteemed him not. Let's get back to the story of Joseph, shall we? Rejected by his brothers, sold into Egypt. Those of us who know the rest of the story know it does turn out well, but not immediately. It's not that Joseph goes into slavery and then immediately God rescues him, returns him to his brothers, having been vindicated by God. No, no, that's not what happened. Rather, on both sides of the fence, on Joseph's side 
and on the side of the family of Israel, things carry on without a miracle. Indeed, that's exactly what Genesis says. Immediately after selling their brother into slavery, we're presented in Genesis 38 with the account of Judah, one of the brothers, and the unholy relationship that develops between him and his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Tamar married Judah's oldest son. His name was Ur. That young man was so wicked, the text says God put him to death. Now, we might say, well, look at his dad. He was ready to kill his own brother, sell him into slavery. And now he had the money and the genes from that deal. Like father, like son, I guess. Well, perhaps. But it might also be that Ur brought wickedness to a new level. At any rate, Tamar's a widow now. And according to the custom of the day, she had to be given to Judah's next son. His name was Onan. God also put him to death for wickedness. At any rate, there's still another son, but Judah's going to have none of it. Eventually, Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute. She invites Judah to have relations with her. He doesn't recognize her, but he's willing. No doubt for Judah, that wasn't the first time he's, he's ever visited a prostitute. Tamar becomes pregnant, and thus she ensures there's going to be an offspring. By leaving out all manner of details from this story, but for our purposes, why is the story of all these things in our Bible? See, I think the answer has to be that the story of Judah highlights what has become to Israel. They've forgotten the covenant with Abraham, and instead they're slowly assimilating into the wider Canaanite culture until if, if things continue to develop in the way that they are, it would mean the disintegration of the entire family. And then Moses, the writer of Genesis, switches our attention back to Joseph. At first, it seems like God is with Joseph. Potiphar, his master, sees the potential in Joseph. He elevates him. But then comes an unjust accusation. Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph of sexual misconduct. Joseph goes from being a household slave into being a prisoner. If you don't know the end of the story, you would think Jesus and Joseph ended in a very similar fashion. Two righteous men whose lives ended badly. Joseph in prison, Jesus lying in a grave. Hi, Ben Lowell, and on behalf of the entire ministry team at Back to the Bible Canada, In Doubt and Laugh Again, I want to extend our thoughts and prayers that you and your family would experience a blessed Christmas. Perhaps this Christmas I've been more reflective than others. Perhaps it's the common circumstance we've shared for nearly two years. All that has taken place in our communities, country, in fact around the world, has reminded us that this world is filled with chaos, much beyond our control. But there is one whom I'm privileged to know, the same one who came to offer a sure and lasting hope, and that because of his arrival, sacrifice, and victory is now preparing a place where the pain and confusion of this world will pass. In the meantime, what a great news we have to share. Jesus is the hope of the ages. Merry Christmas. It's sometimes hard to see God's sovereignty at work. It's especially true when we're suffering. And some of our suffering is due to the fact that it seemed that we had a good future and then suddenly our future is changed. We go from the ideal to something that involves disappointment and betrayal, pain. In such moments, those who have no faith begin to curse God. We might remember that Job's wife counseled her husband, curse God and die, she said. Well, I've known people when suffering to walk away from their faith. 
If God allows this to happen and doesn't intervene, how can I possibly believe he means to do me well? And so failing to understand how God could allow suffering, they just don't believe. I don't want to present Joseph as a sinless man because he's not, but his dealings in prison are exemplary for all believers. He doesn't question God. Indeed, the Bible does not record him struggling to understand how God could have let this imprisonment take place. We don't encounter him saying, it's just not fair. You know, I was my father's favorite, and God gave me a vision that my parents and my brother would bow before me. And since that vision, everything's turned out badly. First hatred from my family, then slavery, and now I'm a prisoner. Well, we don't know how Joseph struggled with his thoughts. The Bible is silent about it. But the Bible does report that the Lord was with Joseph. And Joseph's aware of it. He senses God's favor. He knows that the favor of God means that God will work for his glory and for Joseph's good. And in due time, Joseph's attitude in prison and his willingness to do what needs to be done caught the attention of the prison warden. I love Genesis 39:22. It says, and the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. In other words, Joseph was constantly engaged, constantly working to make prison a better place. And in the end, Genesis tells us that whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. That is, Joseph is completely aware that God's blessing him. Seems strange that the words God's blessing him could even be said about a man condemned to prison with no opportunity to get out. But those who live by faith tend to understand these things. We don't think that this world is our home. It's not riches we seek or fame. Rather, it's doing the task that God has assigned to us. Was Joseph happy in prison? Well, most assuredly, he is not. Indeed, he's keenly aware of what he's lost. When Joseph interpreted the dream of the chief cupbearer, his words are telling. And so Genesis 40, 14 to 15, records Joseph telling the cupbearer, Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. So get me out of this house for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that should put me into this pit. And so we see Joseph, the awareness of what he's lost, the reality of his present suffering, and yet his unwillingness to cease to be faithful to his God. That's a remarkable track record. And I compare that to Jesus in the garden. He's now standing at the threshold of the greatest hour of suffering, and he's praying. And Luke 22, 41-42 says, And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. That is, no man, not even Jesus himself, desires to suffer. And Joseph would have loved to be out of that prison and restored to what he once had, but he was unable to have it. And so he chose to be faithful where God had put him. But in this way, Jesus is greater than Joseph. Jesus could easily have walked out of Jerusalem and gone back to Galilee, but he chose the cup of suffering in obedience to the Father. Again, let's get back to Joseph. If you know the story, eventually Pharaoh has a dream in which he saw seven gaunt and ugly cows swallowing up seven fat cows, and then seven thin ears of wheat swallowing up seven plump ears of wheat. Through a series of events, and I won't take the time to describe it, Joseph is brought from the prison to explain Pharaoh's dream. The Lord shows Joseph the meaning of the dream. There will be seven years of bumper crops, abundance. Following that, there will be seven years of famine, which will swallow up all the abundance. But Joseph's not done. 
He tells Pharaoh, look, you've got to find an appropriate administrator who can manage what's coming. And through even more events, Joseph becomes essentially the prime minister of Egypt, saving Egypt from a national disaster. In that sense, Joseph is the savior of Egypt. But if you know the story, it doesn't end there. The famine's not only felt in Egypt, but it's also felt in Canaan, where the family of Israel lives. They're now on the brink of starvation. They hear about grain in Egypt, and they need to make a journey to Egypt for food. They need to save their lives. And then we come to the time when Joseph could have had his revenge. He's dressed in all the finery as the Lord of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, and his brothers appear before him on the brink of starvation, coming to buy food. And through a series of events, Joseph learns there's now a a younger brother, his only full brother, the new favorite of the father. He arranges to have Benjamin brought to him. And then he accuses him of theft. And he tells the 10, I'm going to imprison Benjamin. You can go free. See, Joseph's keenly interested in finding out what they're going to do. If they're still the same old brothers he once knew very well, he'll gladly assign Benjamin to prison, take the food, and they can go home. Now comes a revelation. Of all people, Judah steps forward. He begs for Benjamin's life. He tells of what this will mean to their father. And then he offers to give himself in place of his brother. Put me in prison. And with that, it becomes plain to Joseph. Things have changed since he's been gone. The brothers have been humbled. And they've been trained by their own suffering and the sorrow over their sin against Joseph. And it's at this point that the story of Joseph comes into clear focus. Joseph now plays the role of a savior. He will save his family from starvation. He tells his brother who he is. And then amazingly, he tells them why he was sold into slavery. See, Genesis 45 verse 5 says, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And that's it. God sent me to Egypt to do this, to preserve many lives. And your lives are among those I have come to save. But even Joseph himself is not yet fully aware of all the ways he will save his family. We had noted that while the family was living in Canaan, they were losing their identity as the children of the covenant God, and slowly they were being assimilated into the wider Canaanite culture, probably into their religion as well. Joseph makes an arrangement to bring the entire family to Egypt, all of them. He situates them in the best land, in Goshen. And suddenly they go from being on the verge of starvation into a land of plenty. But something else happens. The assimilation stops. The Egyptians don't assimilate with Hebrews. From now on, the children of Israel will be a a family distinct from all the nations on earth. And so Joseph saved Israel from spiritual extinction. He's without a doubt a great savior of Israel. And so he also preserved the covenant people of God and the hope of a Messiah. Joseph's place in history is that without him, There would be no gospel in the world today. He is truly one of the greatest men who has ever lived. But he pales in comparison to the greatest Savior of all. In Joseph's case, he would forgive his brothers only after it became apparent that there was a genuine change in their heart. Not so with Jesus. Romans 5 verse 8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And to be sure, there's more. Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers did not cost him his life, but Christ, in order to forgive unrepentant, unregenerate sinners, laid down his life for us. Paul says he laid down his life while we were yet sinners, while we were still in a state of hostility toward him. And for that reason, 
Although the love that Joseph had for his family was a great love indeed, and yet it's but a pale reflection of the love that Jesus had for people who were not part of his family at all, but for whom he would die and make a part of his family. But of course, I've not highlighted the greatest contrast between Joseph and Jesus. Joseph saved his family from assimilation and from starvation. Salvation of Jesus is a salvation that staggers the imagination. Ephesians 2 verse 1 tells us that the entire human race was dead in trespasses and sins. It says we followed the prince of the power of the air. That is, we belonged to Satan. Furthermore, we were ensnared into the desires of our own flesh. And if all of that were not bad enough, we were by nature the children of wrath. So consider the salvation that Jesus has brought. Salvation from sin salvation from Satan, salvation from the power of the lower nature, that addictive part of us that moves us to do the very things that bring about our own ruin. But ultimately, he would save us from the wrath of God. And so we didn't, like Joseph's brothers, go to him and buy bread for salvation. Rather, we carried on in our rebellion against God. And then Jesus, the greater Joseph, reached out his hand and rescued us from eternal death. And that's the Christmas story. A child has been born to us who is a savior. Unlike the great Joseph himself, this one saves his people from their sins. Thanks so much, John. You know, does the fact that both Joseph and Jesus suffered say something to you and I? Yeah, no, I've wanted to, um, you know, make the case that Jesus is the greater Joseph, and so, You know, Joseph suffered, and our Lord and Savior suffered in a way that Joseph never did. And uh, so, as great as Joseph's sufferings were, our Lord's sufferings uh, make those pale in significance. But I know that after Christ, that we are told, and Paul speaks this way in Philippians, that we are, you know, to fill up the sufferings of Christ, and that, you know, it is a gift that has been given in, you know, Philippians 1.29, for not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. And Suffering is a part of the Christian life, and we ought not to ever take that away. But we ought to always remember that when we go through suffering, um, as our Lord and Savior did, that there is a greater purpose of God at work. And so whatever suffering that we presently endure, it's never purposeless. It's never meaningless. It's never wasted. It always has meaning, and it will ultimately lead to great rejoicing. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our Christmas series, The Hope of the Ages, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Back to the Bible Canada is dedicated to the clear presentation of God's good news. The comfort and joy of the gospel are not seasonal. All year round, this ministry carries the power of God's word, which transforms hearts and homes, always striving to use resources to expand our opportunity to share the gospel and connect with people through an ever-increasing lineup of Bible teaching programming. For this purpose, we rely upon the generosity and partnership of God's people to fulfill this great mission. Your financial gifts are more than kindness. They are a participation in seeding God's word and a trust in kingdom work. You may be considering a year-end donation for this purpose. In advance, thank you. Placing our gifts into the activity of God will never disappoint. 
Call us today to make your year-end ministry gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca.